Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. I'm your co-host, Justin Bullock. I'm here as always with my co-host, Greg, Gregory Galls. How are you, Greg? I'm good, Justin. I think we have to tell the listeners, though, that we are not in our normal circumstances. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, downtown Uncorked at historic downtown Brian. We are practicing social distancing and are all zooming in from various isolated spots. Yeah, it, uh, you'll notice there are no clinking of glasses. I might try to clink some around me just for some effects around here. There'll be no kind of fun background noise, but we, um, we're pushing through. And Greg's right, instead of being at Downtown Uncorked in historic Downtown Bryan, we are all joining via Zoom today. Um, and we do have a guest with us, uh, Professor Andrew Natsios, um, who is in your department, Greg. Um, so does that mean you get to play boss tonight? Is that how this works? Uh, and I'm, <laughs> as we know in the academic world, I'm nobody's boss, and I'm certainly not Andrew Natsios's boss. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, uh, welcome. Thank you for being with us this evening. I'm happy to do it. So there's a lot going on. Um, everything, all the time, everywhere is coronavirus, COVID-19. Last time Greg and I chatted with you in our most recent hot takes was about a week ago from this recording date, and we were starting to encourage you to do social distancing and, and take care and stay home when you can. And um, unfortunately, the exponential growth of the spread of COVID-19 is continuing um, in the US. This is, I'm sure as you're listening to this, still dominating uh, the news cycle. Um, and we're lucky to have uh, Andrew Natios with us, uh, who has lots of expertise. I was actually just reading your op-ed that went out today, Andrew, so we'll, uh, maybe we can delve into that. But I think it would be helpful for the audience. They know Greg and I, but maybe just give us a, a few moments uh, about you, who you are, and kind of how you define your career and where you are now. Well, I have a somewhat eclectic career. <laughs> I have three careers, one in state government. I was in the state legislature in Massachusetts, the House of Representatives for 12 years. I was Secretary of Administration of Finance, which is basically the chief operating officer of the state. And then I ran the Big Dig, a large construction project that had some massive cost overruns. So I had to leave Administration of Finance to take over that project, which I did for a year to clean up what was. That, that was in Boston. That was our, in our Boston. viewers, our, our, our viewers, I mean, our listeners might not right. know the Big Dig as well as Andrew and I do. Right. So the, the second career was an international development, part of which was my work uh, running the emergency response functions of the United States Agency for International Development in disasters. It, it used to be just uh, natural disasters like uh, earthquakes and floods and storms, but it, during the Bush 41 administration, the world began to destabilize after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and we had civil wars and famines, which are still happening now, on a large scale. and so. I did international development work, but I also became very much involved in emergency response to crises, which is actually the skills that I learned there are very useful uh, in dealing right now with, uh, or trying to analyze what's going on with coronavirus. Yeah, definitely. And then the third career has been in the academic world. I was at Georgetown University in the Wall School for six and a half years, and I've been here I think seven years, or eighth, this is the eighth year, I think. It's been yeah. at least six years because Greg and I have been here six years and you were here yeah. before us. 
I came in 2012. So this will be the ending. This summer will be the end of the eighth year. Right. Well, um, I'm glad that you are taking the time with us. I know things are a bit hectic right now, uh, but I very much appreciate, Greg and I very much appreciate, as do the listeners, you taking your uh, time to spend with us this evening. Um, so uh, we were just kind of talking about how you had an op-ed today. So why don't, why don't we just jump right in with COVID-19 and tell us kind of your perception of where we are with the current crisis and um, just kind of get listeners kind of caught up to speed where we are as of Tuesday, March 17th. Well, we, we do know a minimum number of infections based on the uh, World Health Organization data, which is a little outdated. The best, in my view, the best website is the Johns Hopkins website, which is probably the finest school of public health in the world, particularly for international development, which is my area. Um, but they have a, a, a data board that's running constantly. And people, for some reason, tend to send them stuff more than any government or the UN. So, and they have mortality figures and they have uh, people uh, who've recovered and all that. The problem is that in many totalitarian societies or autocratic societies, the data may be cooked. Uh, it may be so sensitive politically that they've decided not to report the actual figures. I doubt very much the data that's coming out of the Chinese government. It is, it is very, it destabilized China, not just economically, in my view, politically, the level of um, opposition and rage, not anger, rage among the Chinese people against the government is on the internet, I'm told, and it's uh, been friends of mine say they've never seen anything like it before. Uh, yeah. When Xi Jinping visited the um, center of the, the epicenter of the uh, outbreak in Wuhan, they had to put police in everyone's apartment on the streets he walked to prevent people from yelling epithets at him, uh, which was obviously very embarrassing for the Chinese government. Yeah. I don't, I, I think there are a lot of fine Chinese scientists and uh, they've been doing some very good work under very difficult circumstances, but I, I don't believe that. I think the outbreak was much more extensive in China. And, and the, the two places that we have a major outbreaks are South Korea and Italy, which are modern democracies. It, it, it's very hard in a democracy to suppress information mm -hmm. because of civil society, academics, the news media, uh, the internet. And so I trust their data more. And what's very interesting is the huge disparity between the mortality rates in South Korea, which are under 1%, and in, in uh, Italy, they're over 8%. Now, just to put things in perspective, the 1918 pandemic, which was the worst in modern history, um, the infection, the death rate was 2.5%. So 2.5% of all the people who got the influenza of 1918 died. Now at the upper end of the estimates, 50 to 90 million people died within six months of 1918, which was about 5%, just under 5% of the world's population. 50%, according to a couple of uh, empirical studies done by health scientists of the US casualties in World War I were in the trenches, were attributable to the influenza. Uh, John Barry in his book, The Great Influenza, which is the best history that's been done of it in my view, uh, says that Woodrow Wilson did not have a stroke. He got the influenza, and and uh, it la and and the out the uh, consequences to his his um, his body are what 
uh, paralyzed him in Washington. He was unable to function because the influenza wow. did permanent damage to people's system. Wow. And so Barry makes the argument that, uh, that uh, our negotiating position in World War I, which had been very hardline against the French and UK position, which wanted to grind the Germans into the ground. And by the way, he had, Woodrow Wilson had one of the most extraordinary group of American diplomats and intellectuals and historians, Samuel Elliott Morrison, the greatest American historian of the 20th century, was on the delegation. Uh, John Foster Dulles was on the, uh, the um, delegation as a young lawyer. Robert Taft, the Republican leader in the 40s, was also a young lawyer, the son of William Howard Taft, President Taft. So there are a lot, uh, uh, Walter Lippmann, one of our greatest journalists in the 20th century, was on that delegation. A number of Americans resigned in outrage when Wilson completely changed his, his negotiating position and the argument Barry makes it was because he had the flu and he was almost delirious. And, and that led to World War, that peace agreement led to World War II, most historians believe. Mm -hmm. We were the ones in the way of the Germans, uh, the uh, French and the UK. And so it had profound historical consequences. Wow. Uh, even today, when people who were older remember it, they remember it with horror. The yeah. streets were empty. I mean, what, what you're seeing today took place in 1918. Factories were empty. Elderly people starved to death in their homes because no one would bring food to their houses. They're so afraid of getting infected. Now, the difference is then they had bodies piled up on the streets. The morgues were overrun, um, were, were completely overtaken uh, with dead bodies. That is not the case now. So while some people are panicking in terms of hoarding, we're not seeing any kind of that, you know, really disturbing behavior that took yeah. place in 1980. So um, the, the death rate's about the same. The difference is that COVID-19 is twice as infectious as the flu was. So the flu, the, not the, 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 the flu that takes place every year, um, has what's called an R-naught factor. R-naught is the rate at which one person infects other people. So the flu has got an R-naught factor about one to one and a half. They, on average, uh, two people yeah, get- Andrew, Andrew, is that, is that, that is, that's the historical Spanish flu from 1918? No. Or just no, the, regular, the regular the regular flu that goes around the regular flu every year the death rate for the regular flu every year is one tenth of one percent so it's a, a relatively and and people keep comparing it to the flu it's uh tony fauci who i work with in the bush administration on the hiv aids program president bush and the malaria program I, i've known him for almost 20 years now um he is one of the greatest epidemiologists in the world i'm you know, he's 79 years old. Thank God he didn't retire because we need him right now as the authority. And clearly the president is listening to him now. I don't think he did before, but he is now, which is good for all of us because Tony knows exactly what he's doing. He's been waiting for this for a very long time to happen, unfortunately. We have been predicting this in the pandemic program that we run at the Scowcroft Institute. We keep repeating it over and over again. I don't actually think this is the event. I think there's going to be a worse pandemic in, in the next couple, maybe 10 or 20 years with higher death rates than this. Um, but but um, we're learning a lot. And this is a dry run in many respects for what could be much worse. But in any case, so uh, the, the death rate now is on the average around two and a half to three and a half percent. In Italy, it's eight percent. 
It's under 1% in South Korea. The, the question is why? Why is there such a disparity? It's because Italy has the second oldest population in the world. Only Japan has an older population. South Korea has an average older population, but the area of the country that was infected was a younger, it's a younger group of people who are infected. And so they have a lower death rate because the death rate is much higher among people over 60. Uh, 14, on average, 14% of the people over 80 will die from COVID-19, according to a empirical study in China based, we think very good scientists conducted. It was peer reviewed and published, I think, I don't know whether it was the New England Journal of Medicine or the American Medical Association or Lancet, but one of a respected journal published, it was peer reviewed. Uh, if you're over 70, you have a nine to 10% chance of dying. If you're over 60, I think it goes down to 5% and then under 50, it's very low. No child under nine years old has died. And uh, the scientists cannot tell us why. We don't know why. Normally, in most emergencies that I've worked with, in refugee emergencies, displaced emergencies around the world, the children are under five are most at risk. And they die in large numbers because they have underdeveloped immune systems that cannot resist disease. And for a variety of reasons, when there's a large refugee flow, then uh, health conditions deteriorate, sanitary conditions. So. Uh, we don't know why. We're happy, though. <laughs> we don't have to worry about my granddaughters. Um, but it, it, it and it, the other group that's at risk are people who have comorbidity, which is to say other uh, serious uh, illnesses like cancer, uh, heart disease, uh, stroke, diabetes, uh, anti um, uh, inflammatory illnesses uh, that are serious, and, and a large number of people who die uh, have these comorbidities. Now, one very interesting piece of evidence that comes out of China, but one study in Wuhan, is that 56% of the people who died had um, severe high blood pressure that was not treated. So it appears that the one factor of all of these comorbidities that's the most dangerous is high, uh, untreated, high um, uh, blood pressure or hypertension, as we call it. Andrew, uh, Andrew, let me let me ask. Uh, you you've done a lot of work in the pandemic project at the Scowcroft Institute here at the Bush School on on how international cooperation, how international organizations and states uh, should cooperate in the face of of pandemics and, and, and global health crises. Do you, do you think that we're seeing that kind of international cooperation that we need? It, it seems to me that we're seeing, uh, you know, a lot of national responses, but not much coordinated well, effort. Uh, what's very interesting is the realists may be right that when there comes to a crisis that countries protect their own people. And countries, for example, that signed the Convention of Europe with open borders and now closing their borders in direct violation of the uh, of the agreement that was made. And I understand if I were them, I, that's exactly what I would do. Uh, so, and, and some public health people criticized President Trump when he did that. I, Tony Fauci said publicly that it was the right thing to do when we shut off the um, trips to, uh, incoming trips from China. It's nothing to do with racism. It has to do with trying to isolate the uh, infection. Um, but, you know, does it increase tension? Of course it does. And we do need cooperation right now. 
The good thing is the scientists are sharing information with each other, and they are they appear to be coordinating on a level that can't be controlled by governments, which is a good thing. Uh, the other thing is, you know, WHO um, is not the highest functioning UN agency. Uh, there are three or four other UNAID, like the World Food Program, UNHCR, um, UNICEF, that are much better run, more aggressive. And part of it's the governance structure. I don't want to get into it now, but this had nothing to do with anyone now. When WHO was set up 60 or 70 years ago, they uh, made the regional offices report directly to the board of directors, which basically is all countries in the world and not to the director general, which is my view is absolutely nuts, which is why uh, Ebola got out of control because the regional office in Africa did not want to announce that it was going on and they delayed uh, announcing an emergency and they've been trying to fix it, but there's a lot of resistance to fixing it. Anyway, so I think frankly, we should be seconding people to the World Health Organization uh, we don't, I don't do it to embarrass the UN, but they don't have the level of confidence, competence, frankly, for a variety of reasons. It's not that Tedros isn't competent. He was the best health minister in, uh, in Africa when he was health minister in Ethiopia. He's a very capable guy. Uh, the, the guy who ran against him is a guy from the UK who used to be with DFID, which is the British aid agencies like USAID. And he ran, they're both very competent people. And Tedros, to his credit, brought in the guy he ran against. Mm. There's a bitter conflict between the two of them over who would be director general. Uh, he brought him in to help fix the system after he won, which I think shows maturity in my, in my view. I think Tedros has been a little bit too accommodating to China and all this. China waited two months before they acted because they knew what the consequences would be. I don't know, we still don't know whether or not Xi Jinping knew all this was going on, or they were afraid to tell him. In a dictatorship, frequently, uh, the bureaucracy does not want to give bad news to senior people. My first rule when I was AID administrator is if you don't tell me bad things are happening, I'm going to be very angry. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because I can fix things the earlier you tell me there's a crisis. If you wait till it's blowing up, it's too late. So I would repeat that every month, and they would come in all the time and say, we've got a problem here, Andrew, let's fix it. That's the, the way we should be dealing with it, not ignoring the problem. It's a disaster to ignore a problem like this. But the Chinese did act in a very authoritarian way. However, it was effective. They did three things. They did social distancing, which is what we're doing now in the United States on a massive scale. Two, they quarantined people who were suspected of being ill. And then for people who were proven to be ill, they constructed these huge facilities to care for them. Only people who, who had the, the virus were in these facilities, and uh, they, they uh, isolated them from the society. So it's isolation, quarantine, social distancing. Now, we haven't got to the point yet where we need to do um, uh, uh, quarantine, other than what we did, which the president had a federal legal authority to do when we were bringing people back from China, and from Italy, uh, some students from AM came back from They had to be quarantined under federal law, and the president had the authority, and he used it properly so, to quarantine them for a certain period, I think it was two weeks or something, before they would be allowed to come out and go back to their, uh, their homes or schools. So, Andrew, what do you think of the numbers coming out of our own country? Not that they would be kind of 
forced in a direction by the Trump administration, for example, but just the sheer lack of testing that seems to be going well, on. Well, the difference between South Korea and the United States or South Korea and Italy is South Korea, by the way, had an outbreak of SARS, mm -hmm. which, by the way, is a uh, similar illness. It's in the same family of coronaviruses as COVID-19 is. So they, they actually have some uh, RNA similar similarities. Um, they had an outbreak. Their system did not work very well. They fixed their system. If the one thing that comes out of this, other than economic chaos, and uh, you know, we're going to be living with the consequences of this for a long time, is that we fix the dysfunctions in the federal and state and local systems, which we have not done. Then that'll be worth the pain of it because when a major outbreak comes that has much higher death rates, we'll be able to deal with it. Uh, but we, we don't have, the South Koreans tested a quarter of a million people within a month. We've, we've tested under 10,000 people in a country of 330 million people. The biggest failing of the federal government is that CDC, because it's so risk averse and so cautious, its procedures are in place to make sure they don't make any mistakes under any circumstances. That's the whole federal system, actually. It's one of the greatest weaknesses of the federal government, in my view, is the, the risk aversion of the career staff because they know what happens if they make a mistake. On the front page of the newspapers, the congressional hearings, they're torn apart. And it doesn't make any difference who the president is. Both parties go after the other party when anything goes wrong. It's a very destructive system in terms of the message that it sends to the career people. So I'm not blaming CDC, but they're not an emergency response agency. And when you have a disaster like this, which we call a fast onset disaster, you need to act immediately. The first thing they should have done was get that issue settled with those test kits. Now, Tony Fauci, Tony Fauci said that they're going out this week, they're going out this week. He said at a press conference with the president two days ago that 1.9 million test kits will go out during this week. He would not have said that if he did not mean to have that happen and know that it would happen. So we're way behind the curve. And the reason I say that is we don't know what the infection rate in the United States is. This data that's for the U.S. is complete. It's not, in, it's not wrong. It's just completely inaccurate in terms of the volume. I think everybody who is on that list, in fact, has the disease. And the mortality rate, I'm sure, is accurate. But it's not complete. I mean, I, I'm expecting tens of thousands of people to be infected. And that's when panic may start, which, you know, I'm, I'm a little worried about, I have to say. Yeah, uh, uh, I think all of us as well. Um, that's been one of, as I've been discussing with people, one of the concerns I've had is just any, you know, you talk kind of informally to people who think they have symptoms and they call. They call the hospital or they call their doctor and they mm -hmm. have the things that they say fit the, the symptoms and the hospital and the doctor say, stay home unless you need to be admitted to the hospital and you're, you know, your temperature is 104 and you're feeling really ill, we're not even going to, we're not even going to test you. You can kind of see this in some of the numbers I've seen where you look at closed cases right now in the U.S. and 50 something percent of the closed cases have ended in deaths. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's because we're way under, you know, we have way under uh, sampling of the actual folks who are infected. Right. Um, we're just right. not even in the right kind of realm of numbers that we should be testing. I, I think but one decisions the president made late, in my view, was to bring FEMA into this. FEMA is an emergency management agency. While they did not do 
good work 20 years ago, they have improved dramatically. I worked with them on the Hurricane Harvey uh, aftermath, and I think they've improved dramatically over what they were 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and, and, and so they do know how to move quickly when they have to. So, so can I go, Andrew, can I ask you about this testing issue? Because it, it does seem to me that, that if we're getting, if we're, if we're pushing out, you know, 1.9 million tests, uh, uh, you know, test kits now, uh, presumably uh, our numbers will get to be more accurate. But, but when we say push them out, what do we mean? I mean, who, who gets these test kits? Who decides who gets tested? I mean, my, my sense is that at least uh, from, from some communications we've had from students, at least I've had from students coming back from travel and all, who, who uh, would like to get tested because they'd, they'd like to see whether they should stay in quarantine, uh, uh, in self-quarantine. Uh, who, who makes decisions on this? Do you know? But at 1.9 million test kits, they can, I think they can meet demand. What they're going to do is what they did in South Korea, which is a very good idea, because they don't want to infect people in the hospital who were there for other reasons. You don't want to kill people who already have comorbidity in the hospital. So they're gonna do drive-ups. And so you don't even get out of the car. And they'll, they'll do the test and they'll have a process. It will be health clinics and it will be hospitals. I, I think you, you can go to a doctor's office if the doctor asks you to come in, but they're not gonna ask you to come in because in order to um, process a person, they're gonna to have to have these suits. And most doctor's offices don't have those suits. Hosp the, the, the hospitals do. And, and uh, they've been practicing, I might add, I've been talking to some people, they're practicing the use of the suits because they haven't had to use them before. Mm. <laughs> so um, they'll do drive through, you'll drive up, they'll do the test, and then you drive, drive away. That's the way it will work. Okay. So I've, one thing you've alluded to, Andrew, that's been on my mind lately, and uh, I'm sure it's been on a lot of people's minds with some of the big drops in the stock market this week, is the oh piece my. of this that is... <laughs> that is, you know, in the wake of kind of America reckoning with social distancing and kind of shutting a lot of public spaces down, a lot of the emphasis has been on that. Um, and just over the last kind of 48 hours, I think there have been um, more conversations at the national level about what to do about the economic um, impacts. And so you see some chatter now around coming from, I think Mitt Romney, uh, Senator Mitt Romney and Senator Tom Cotton are the two um, I saw talking about this kind of giving direct payments to people. So we can talk about maybe some of the policy responses. Greg and I talked a little bit about this um, last week, and I have some ideas about that. But, you know, it seems to me that this can be um, a really serious long-term impact on the economy. And we've already dropped 33%-ish in the stock market. People are going to be out of work. I mean, in, in your experience thinking about uh, – disasters and how you've been kind of following this and along. I mean, this, this has to be at the end, the bigger, the bigger story. What are some of your kind of concerns and thoughts about how this will, uh, could unfold? Historically, when there's been an epidemic uh, in the last 60 or 70 years, when we've developed a more sophisticated, larger, complex economy, it's a V-shape. There's a collapse and then uh, things go back. Now, that's what people are saying is going to happen. I don't believe that to be the case. And the reason is we have a much higher level of corporate and individual debt than we did before the night 2008, which was we were over leveraged then, which is one thing that caused the economic chaos of night 2008. 
and this is it's now more leveraged and so we could have a cascading effect of major companies going bankrupt we almost had fidelity uh vanguard were, were teetering the two biggest mutual funds in the world uh you know fidelity's from boston i knew the the former owner of the, the ceo nettie johnson and his I don't know his daughter, Abigail Johnson, but she runs it now. The last thing on earth we need are these giant uh, firms being at risk. I haven't heard any talk about them being at risk, but with the stock market going down and people panicking, they may be moving their money out, which is a very bad idea. I mean, I didn't touch my money in 2008. I left it there and within a year, all the money that I had lost is all back. This is my retirement account, you know? I don't lose any money. But some people panicked, they took it out, and they lost a huge amount of money and took years to try to rebuild that. So panic is, is, will damage people's retirement. That's not a good thing. Um, so yes, there's, in fact, in my view, the longer-term consequence, the, there are three or four longer-term consequences of this uh, event that we're living through. It's a historic event. It, re regardless of how it comes out, it's already going to change history. One is uh, global supply chains are much more fragile than people realize. There's no redundancy in them. And, and that means that, for example, 80% of our, uh, 80 to 85% of our drugs have components in them from China that are made in China. And this is true for the Europeans as well. We wrote a piece on this that was, just, was uh, through the conversation, which is a new service of academics, as you know. And um, it was uh, picked up by 218 media outlets around the world. The German health minister was actually quoting by name the Scowcroft Institute, and he was reading the, uh, the column publicly. And he's saying, we have the same problem the Americans have. We're 80% of our API, API is active pharmaceutical ingredients. So many people, the pharmaceutical companies will tell you, oh, no, we manufacture these drugs here. Well. That's true, but what they didn't tell you is the components that go into the drug are manufactured in China. Mm -hmm. And those factories were shut down for two or three months. We don't even know if they're up and running now. And so we, in a piece, the piece that we wrote, uh, said, and it's not a secret. I mean, there have been congressional hearings on this, but no one's done anything on it. I can guarantee you something will be done. I'm told that the president is gonna issue an executive order on this because there is, this goes in line with his view that we need to decouple ourselves from globalization. I believe in globalization. However, I, I now realize there's a downside to it. It's not the question of inequity. It's not the question of working conditions. It's the question of uh, national security being at risk in a health crisis where we have no control, not just of the drugs, but of the face masks uh, and all the equipment. We have, and the other thing that's happened, which is, very disturbing, but I know why they had it, because the principal objective of uh, multinational corporations, which are, you know, when people tap them, I say, well, who do you think owns all these big companies? We own them in our retirement accounts. <laughs> if you look, who, you know, who do you think owns uh, uh, Exxon Mobil? Uh, pension funds, public pension funds, teachers' pension funds. So these companies are our companies. There's pressure to make maximum uh, profits. And, and they've been doing that. And the consequence is there's no redundancy in the system. They don't have huge stockpiles of stuff. And, and, and as a result, if there are 10 steps to anything being produced, 
in a, let's say, a, in, in something that's not a national security issue, like a cell phone, 10 different countries produce pieces. And if one country can't produce it for one, whatever reason, the whole thing shuts down. And that's exactly what's happening now. There are shortages uh, because China has been shut down. If it wasn't China, it'd be another country. So I think we haven't considered sufficiently the supply chain uh, issues that are putting us at risk economically and in terms of our national security and our public health. Well, um, those are be considered very seriously, along with the economic consequences. We, I, I hope we don't have a cascading effect in terms of um, defaulting by these big, huge international companies. There is more uh, resilience in the financial system there was because there were reforms passed requiring much more. Um, uh, cash reserves in banks and uh, companies um, after 2008, and and so that's good. But there's still too much debt, in my view. I, you know, the federal budget deficit, in my view, has been too big for 10 years now, <laughs> and no one talks about it. My party is, you know, has completely abandoned that as an issue, and the Democrats don't seem to care about it either. <laughs> I, I don't know who does care about it. They're going to just run this thing up more. There's going to be more federal debt anyway. <laughs> we're all gonna we're all gonna get a check pretty soon from what i hear so that'll that'll add to the debt but andrew let me yeah. let, yes. let me let, let me go back to this question of, of organizations so who should who who should be running this show i uh, I, I didn't say something you asked a question before and i should have answered it fully aid if they had been instructed to by the white house and given the money could have gone all over Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, the North Africa, and Asia to prepare these countries very early on to deal with this. They did not do that. They weren't even put on the task force, the White House, which in my view is a major oversight. Right. So, I mean, they stop these things at the source. You don't stop yeah. them at a border. That's ridiculous. Right. Right. So, 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 to, to, but anyway, I, I, so I think we sh who should be in charge in the papers we have uh, published. Uh, we have said, this, these are published, by the way, when President Obama was in office, and we repeated it. It doesn't make any difference who the president is. You should not appoint a cabinet secretary to be head of the task force. I can tell you from a decade in federal service and 18 years of service, in, or 16, 14 years of service at the state level, the cabinet secretaries, with the, at state level, I had enormous authority. There's no federal official in Washington with the authority that the Secretary of Administration Finance has in Boston. So that's a little different. In Washington, power is diffuse, and the only person other than the president who can take a big stick out and force cabinet secretaries to work together who won't otherwise is the vice president. Now, people don't like Pence, so they all attacked him when he got chosen. This was a good choice. He should have done it earlier. He appointed Alex Azar. Alex Azar is a, uh, was the head of Eli Lee, don't you want someone who knows how to manufacture drugs to be the, under these circumstances? You do. He's actually very smart and he, he's a lawyer. He's a very gifted administrator from what people tell me. But he was not, he did not have the authority to crack heads, which is what you need to do in an emergency. You don't ask people. You give them orders and you carry them out or you fire them. That's what you do in emergency response. You don't have time to negotiate everything, which is what he would have to do. So Pence, it appears to me Pence is a stabilizing influence. It was a good choice, but he should have been chosen a lot earlier. So I, 
point taken on uh, kind of playing catch up. But, you know, there's these reports that the, the Trump administration, John Bolton, when he was national security advisor, did away with a, a, a unit within the National Security Council that the Obama people put together after H1N1 uh, to, to try to anticipate and plan for uh, pandemics. I, I wondered if the National Security Council was the right place for that, uh, for, for that kind of, 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 of unit. You know, when we're not in crisis situations, between crises, where in the government should we have this kind of, of early warning system to, to uh, keep us informed, to take the, to, to, to force through the bureaucracy, the preventative actions, the preparatory actions that, that might make us, put us in a better place so we don't have to play catch up when the next, when the next outbreak happens. Every president has established that office after there's been a crisis. So the first thing, I mean, Clinton didn't appoint, didn't create that office until after there was an outbreak in the mid-90s. Bush abolished Clinton's office and then created it when we had the anthrax attack, but he had mm -hmm. abolished it already. He recreated it, and for eight years or seven years, we had a highly functioning. The first thing Obama did is he abolished that office. I mean, Obama's now saying, well, he didn't do, but he did do it. He abolished it. There was no office. And then when things blew up, with uh, uh, with the, the, the flu and with Ebola, they reestablished it. You know, the problem with uh, having it in the White House is exactly that's going to happen. New presidents always sweep away what existed before, and that's an issue. The problem is, if you put it in the bureaucracy, it will not have the authority to make the decisions. So what I've argued, there, there is a biosecurity uh, commission. It's co-chaired by, it's separate from the federal government, by uh, Joe Lieberman, former senator from uh, Connecticut, and Tom Ridge, the former governor of Pennsylvania, was Secretary of Homeland Security, a Republican and a Democrat. They co-chair. They they produce a uh, Jerry Parker, Dr. Parker, who's the head of the pandemic program uh, at uh, the Bush School uh, at in, in uh, Scowcroft Institute, is also associate dean of the um, veterinary school. He's a retired military officer and brilliant guy. He's one of the national authorities on this, so he's on that commission. And they produced reports. I've testified before them. And by the way, they've also advocated many of the same things we have. What I've said is we need to have a office like the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance and AID. When there's a disaster abroad, you don't ask even the administrator of AID, or the secretary of the president, no matter who it is, to declare a disaster. All you need is the U.S. ambassador in the country that is at risk to say yes, and they always say yes immediately. That's never been an issue. In fact, they usually declare disasters when there isn't one because they want money coming from AID, which I'm, I had to stop them. I said, this is not a disaster. We're not spending you any money, you know? It was not a function. With one exception, I did not see any uh, issue with uh, OFDA being stopped from doing something. It's usually they want to be used when it's not really a disaster. You need a bureaucracy that can send out teams immediately without the president or the secretary of state or the administrative AID at a low level who have repeatedly done training and how to do this stuff to send it out immediately. This is internationally, but it's also true domestically. Now, I know it's, it's a harder thing to say you're not going to decentralize to that local level. 
James Q. Wilson says in his book, Bureaucracy, if you want to improve federal management, decentralize authority to the lowest levels of the bureaucracy of people who actually know what they're doing technically and the subjects that they're in charge of administering. And I have believed that. I've seen it myself. But getting Congress to decentralize that authority when the operation, I'm not talking about making the operation, the um, organizational decisions as to who is responsible for what, that needs to come out of the White House. And it needs not to be in an executive order because when a new president comes in, they dump out all the executive orders that existed before. That needs to be in statute, in my view, or a federal regulation that can't be easily changed. And then the actual operation needs to be pushed down to the lowest level. So as soon as we have a problem, we start taking action. And that's domestically. But do you think, here we get into the, the, the international relations element of this. The Chinese, as you said, slow walk this uh, for a while, whether it's because their bureaucracy is inefficient or they didn't have good information going up or they just didn't want to face the consequences. Would the Chinese have accepted American help? It, it seems like it, when, when we offered it, they didn't want it. They didn't want it. They, yeah, I know why. I, can, I, I suspect there are a lot of bad things that happened that no one knows about. And if CDC went in early on, they would have seen it. That's my suspicion. The other reason is they didn't want the bad publicity of having to accept help from the United States. They're now sending teams to Italy. Right. And what they did and the Russians did after the 2008 collapse is to try to take space away from the United States in the developing world, saying, you know, all the Americans there, they all, they all they care about is themselves. We're here to help you. But I think a lot of countries are gonna say, wait a second, <laughs> this started in China. They're not gonna believe this stuff that the US military imported it. They're trying to spread this rumor around. But uh, I, I think the Belt and Road Initiative is gonna become a problem for the Chinese. I don't think a lot of countries are gonna say too much risk, we're not going to do this anymore. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. One of the things you said uh, a little bit earlier in the conversation, Andrew, was that you suspect that this won't be kind of the end of pandemics or even the, wor the most uh, horrible one or the kind of uh, largest ranging impact one from, um, uh, that, we might, that we might see or that we might have. I was wondering what makes you what makes you think of that? I mean, I, I've listened to, um, I have some thoughts about this as well, but pandemic experts say similar things. Why is it that you foresee in the future, um, in the next decade or two, something that's even even worse than what we're dealing with right now? What gives you that, well, that thought? You know, UNFPA, the United Nations uh, Program on Family Planning and all that, also is their demographers, and they do estimates of population growth rates. They at one point were saying they're going to be 50 billion people by the end of the century, and of course that turns out to be utter nonsense. They keep dropping the rate down, and we're, we're down now. They, they were a couple of years ago down to 12 billion people by the end of the century, by the end of the 21st, 20th century. I'm sorry, the 20, 21st. 21st century. <laughs> and uh, now they're saying 11 billion, and I think they're going to drop below that because fertility rates are dropping. However, there is still population growth rate going on. And where are those people growing, uh, uh, the population growing? It's not in the wealthy countries that have the capacity to absorb the population. It's in poor countries where there is very poor water and sanitation, if there's any at all. In the, and, and there's a, so the first problem is population growth. Two, uh, people are moving in from the rural areas in remote 
areas that are separate from each other. One of the reasons Ebola blew up is because it entered urban, urbanized or peri-urbanized areas in Africa that had never seen the disease before, would, had been in isolated villages in the rainforest and all that. You know, if there's a village of 100 people and everybody gets Ebola and dies, it, it, it doesn't have a big effect on a village that's uh, 10 miles away because they don't have any contact with it. Once they move into an urban area, then there's easy transmission. The, the, the other thing that's happening, so it's urbanization, it's population growth. You know, uh, China in 1950 was 90% rural and 10% urban. And now it's 60% urban and 40% rural. It's the largest migration in the history of the world, this, this urbanization in China. But it brings with it huge risks. And that's what the Chinese, Chinese have been worried about this for a long time and trying to plan for it. So that's the third. The fourth thing that's happened, and I've been saying this, and people don't want to talk about it, is we have created the greatest machine for the dispersion of disease ever created in human history. It's called an international airport. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we decide, the president actually made the right decision initially, and then people convinced him, well, you're going to, you know, you're going to get hit politically if you don't let Americans come back to the United States. Did you see the scenes at all the airports? The people yeah. coming back from Europe? What do you think that was at these airports? Three or four hours with people one foot from each other? It's a, I mean, I totally Those pictures it. were outrageous. <laughs> and it was, but, but forget the weight. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's the disease of, you know, if you had five people in the entire crowd at O'Hare International Airport in Chicago was, were infected, they must have infected a thousand people where they were there during all those hours. So they should have said, everybody stay where you are for a few weeks isolate yourself and then you can come home and they should have phased it in, but they, that's not what happened. In any case, um, the airport, international airport, and it's not me saying this, there have been uh, models done of how SARS got to Canada. It got through Mexican uh, international airport, Mexico City International Airport, one of the biggest um, airports in North America. Huge airports where people from all over the world come in the middle of a pandemic are going to if it's if it's an aerosol dispersion, I mean Ebola was you had to touch something, and it was hard to get it actually. But uh, the, if aerosol, which means fine um, in in the in the uh, ventilation system and all that, this is not. This is small mucus drops. So this is not as uh, as uh, dangerous, for example, as measles. Measles is. For every person a per, uh, who gets measles, they'll infect 14 people. The only reason we haven't been having huge outbreaks of measles is because all of us have, most of us have um, vaccinations. And the anti-vaccine movement, by the way, I'm hoping this is going to destroy that movement. That's a very dangerous movement. Amen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thirded. <laughs> so moving, moving forward, we're getting kind of toward the end of the time here. Um, as we move forward, Andrew, kind of give me some ideas about what you think is, what's our, what's our best case scenario, uh, given where we are and some of the current responses, and then uh, a range to maybe some more unsettling uh, outcomes from where we are now. Kind of give us a, a range of what people can be uh, kind of have in their purview. Best case scenario, worst case scenario. Well, the best case scenario would be that all these tests are done and they show a relatively low infection rate which means the disease is not um, 
all over the country, in which case you could do this social distancing. I don't know, I don't know if anybody's keeping track of, uh, of the country and how much people are reacting, but it does appear from what I see at HEB when I go in the shop that people are, are trying to hoard because they think they're gonna be at home for a while. How long people can discipline themselves to stay at home uh, is a big question. We don't know that. In fact, I don't think people know it who, mm -hmm. um, who are at home, how long they can be cooped up for that mm -hmm. distance, that, that amount of time before they simply can't take it anymore. Americans don't like to be cooped. Americans don't like restrictions on their freedom either. Yeah. Whether you're a liberal or conservative, you use different language, it's the same behavior. Yeah, people don't right. like don't tread on me is you know that's what americans are all about well the problem is in a in a, an epidemic like this you either put constraints on individual behavior or we're going to have a catastrophe the modeling the worst case scenario which i i don't believe it but i'm telling you what this models are showing there's a model with a guy um at harvard the school of public health he's widely respected mark lipsick i think his name is and he was projecting that 40% of the population of the world would have this, 40% of the United States, just do the math. The death rate now is 2%. What's 2% of 40% of the country? It's not a nice um, scene. That would be 120 million people, and 2% of that would be two million, you know, two and a half million people would die. Uh, 650,000 Americans died in 1918 in the influenza. Um, I don't think the models are right. In fact, Bob Cadillac, uh, who came last year, he's a keynote speaker at our uh, pandemic summit. We gave him a career award for his work. And um, he said at a congressional hearing, I listened to him last week and he said, the models are wrong. And I say, thank God they're wrong. He didn't say what that meant. I know what it means. The, pan the models are predicting huge infection rates. I think what happened uh, for the president to take these very draconian measures in the last two weeks is a study came out from Oxford from the Royal Institute of Infectious Disease, I don't remember the precise term for it, which showed that two and a half million Americans could die. That's, their models are showing the same thing at the Harvard models. Now, modeling is educated guesswork, that's what it is. They test the value, the, the legitimacy of the model based on empirical evidence and they if they're exactly the same, then the model works. If it's not exactly the same, then they try to adjust it. We don't have any experience with these models because we haven't had a pandemic like this before. I'm praying that that worst case scenario does not happen and that these measures work, um, but we don't know. So the best case scenario is that the infection rate looks relatively small, that everybody follows the instruction to stay home, and not to go out in, uh, into large groups, and we get the infection under control within a few weeks. We can, because once people know they're ill, they're gonna stay in bed and stay at home. They're not gonna go out and go to work if they got 104 temperature. Um, I hope not. No, and, and, and the big fear is, this is the big fear. If there's a spike in the number of people in the hospitals, the hospitals will become overwhelmed and they're help to start doing what the Chi the Italians are doing, which is triaging people. They're basically saying to older people, "You, we have younger people here now." Because by the way, there, there's a big uh, increase in the last two weeks in young people in Italy being hospitalized, which we had not seen before in the early 40s. We don't understand why. That's not a good sign, actually. But um, 
What we don't want is for this to balloon up very rapidly, overwhelm the hospitals, they run out of respirators, they run out of hospital space, and we start having people die in large numbers. If we can slow down the rate of the spread of this so that people get sick, there are enough beds, and they're treated, and they get better, and then, and then uh, six months from last month, from February, we will probably have a drug uh, tested and for human use and manufactured. Uh, so, and, and then and in a year, Andrew, just to make sure that that's a drug that will treat the illness. It's not a vaccine that will prevent. No, it's not a vaccine, but will kill it. It's an antiretroviral. It will kill the virus. It's once not you just, get it, right. once you get once you get it, it's like getting an antibiotic. It will kill right. the, the bacteria, or in this case, an antiretroviral will kill the virus. That's what we need. We're we're, we're not going to be able to immunize anybody for a year and a half. You know, even after they've gone through all the protocols to test this, the vaccine, it will still take time to manufacture and get it out and all. We can't rely on that. We can't, but we can rely on a drug being produced. The Chinese supposedly are saying they're going to have a vaccine available by the end of this year. They're racing to get it before we get it, get it produced because they want to show that they're superior technologically. The problem is. Chinese, the Chinese do not have strong protocols the way South Korea, Japan, the United States, and Western Europe does when it comes to these health matters. And um, it, it could be that they produce something that has side effects that we don't like, or that could be very bad, or that might only be 75% effective, which is not what we want. So the competition is usually pretty good, but not in something like this when you're dealing with a great power that has other ambitions. Thank you. Uh, that was, um, I can't say that's a pretty picture, um, but I think it's one that probably the listeners need to hear to kind of understand the range of uh, things coming down the, down the pipe and how seriously to kind of take the exhortations to practice social distancing, to stay home if you can, to limit your interaction to the degree you can, stay home. <laughs> um, this, is, this is serious. So don't even touch though, your face. What's that? Don't touch your face. Oh no, have I been doing it? Ah! No, I'm just saying that the listeners. Let me just say one last thing for our listeners. Not that we're going to have a huge audience, but there's a lot of. Oh gosh, Andrew, that's harsh. Harsh. You're you're stomping on your own podcast. Yeah, well, you're going to you're going to get us our highest numbers ever. Okay, so people, some people are saying this is is a conspiracy to embarrass the president or collapse the economy and all that. This is not a conspiracy. <laughs> it's ridiculous, stop saying it. Don't read these ridiculous things on the internet and I'm a conservative, okay? It's ridiculous to say that. Someone on the internet is saying you should breathe in 133 degree um, <laughs> uh, uh, heat and that will kill the virus. <laughs> Okay. Don't do that. You'll damage your system, okay? And then it's It'll not kill gonna... a lot of other things, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh and then uh, someone said if you hold your breath for 10 seconds or something, <laughs> yeah. you can hold it that long, you don't have the disease. That's complete nonsense. Yeah. It, it does affect your lungs, but that's the later stage of the disease, not the earlier stage. When you're, and that's, when, you're, when you're having trouble breathing, you're at the later stages. You may die in that case because that's most of the people whose lungs are damaged are the ones who die. 
or they're seriously ill and they have to be hospitalized. The stuff on the internet is doing damage because people are believing this garbage and there's stuff, people are selling stuff online, you know, that's gonna help people recover and all that. Don't Alex believe anything. Jones, oh my gosh, Alex Jones and this televangelist I came across. Selling, oh my gosh, it's-, it's the, the bigger, the, the biggest virus in the world is not the coronavirus, it's the virus of stupidity on the internet. <laughs> I, I think it could be prosecuted myself, but that's yeah. my opinion. Yeah, yeah, it seems particularly uh, wrong and unethical. <laughs> it is unethical, and it's it's, uh, it's false advertising. And, you know, fraud is a criminal activity in my view. And in this case, it is these conspiracy theories are not helpful. Do we want the economy to collapse like this? Of course not. Now, there's some people. Maybe Bernie Sanders thinks it's a good idea, but most normal people don't think it's a good idea. We don't want this to happen, but the reality is we could have a catastrophic loss of life. And that should be the first priority of Republicans and Democrats and liberal and conservatives is to protect people from a catastrophic event that, where we have a large scale loss of life. So that's, 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 that's a good point to end on, I think. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Um, and to our listeners, uh, as you heard uh, Andrew mention uh, Jerry Parker, uh, was a uh, world-renowned expert on some of these issues. Um, and Christine Blackburn, who's also part of the Scowcroft Institute and who's also a pandemic expert, will be meeting with us in the same Zoom format because we will be doing our part in social distancing um, still. And about a week, we'll be recording with them and bringing cool. that episode to you as well. And um, so we'll be keeping you informed. And maybe in another week after that, Greg and I will have another Hot Takes. Um, you know, Greg, I was a little bummed. Uh, our hot takes is being, I think it was published uh, <laughs> maybe yesterday or today uh, as we're oh, recording. And, oh, and I uh, suggested to you unemployment insurance as the potential mechanism to directly deliver payments if that's something we wanted to do. And in between our conversation and when we were recorded, that was one of the moves was to try to extend uh, unemployment insurance. So, hey. Uh, Hey, not just unemployment insurance. Apparently, we're all going to get checks. Checks, 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 checks. Well, we'll be. Well, that's something, that's something we can talk about on the hot takes later. Yeah, yeah we can. <laughs> Andrew, thanks so much. Greg, good to see Thank you. you. And, uh, thanks, Andrew. It's been a really great good conversation. To see you, Justin. You too. Thank you.